Telus International Studios, where customer experience meets digital transformation. Welcome back to Telus International Studios. I'm Patrick Hawhey, and on this episode, I meet Sinead Bovell, the founder of Way, which stands for Weekly Advice for Young Entrepreneurs. Way was created to teach young entrepreneurs about the intersection of business, technology, and the future. Sinead has some very, very interesting and important views on the future of digital technologies and what we humans need to be doing right now to make sure that we are not left behind as these technologies like AI, ML and blockchain and many others evolve at an incredible pace. Of course, Sinead's views as a result are in high demand. In 2018, she was appointed Director of Youth-Led Innovation for Blockchain for Impact. Uh, More recently, she spoke at the United Nations and the US Chamber of Commerce on technology and the future. So we were delighted when Sinead agreed to take the time to join us here on TELUS International Studios. I think you are going to get a lot out of this conversation, whether you are running a company or you're managing and growing a team within a company, or simply if you interact in any way with modern technology, which of course is basically all of us. And I think you're going to find it very interesting. As ever, if you like what you are hearing, please subscribe or follow or give the series a rating and a review. That really helps more people just like you to discover TELUS International Studios. So let's get straight to my conversation with today's guest, and I hope you enjoy it. Sinead Bovell, you are very welcome to TELUS International Studios. How are you keeping? Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I am well, thanks. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm very well. And I'm, I was kind of figuring out how to describe you, Sinead, because you have a very varied um, and an extremely impressive CV. So I'm just going to take a stab at it. You're the founder of Way, you're a futurist, you're a speaker, you're a youth tech leader, and you're a fashion model. And I'm guessing there's no university course that qualifies you specifically for this exact position. So I would love to hear about um, a little bit about your, your backstory and how you came to the point where you're now running Way, which is an incredibly, I don't know, would you call it a platform? Would you call it a, just a, a, a huge communication tool and platform and content house for a very important issue for a very important audience? But I, we're going to hear all about that in a couple of moments. Um, but wh- where did it all start for you? Yes, and, and I would agree that the uh, my background is very nonlinear, uh, non unconventional uh, to say the least. Um, so it started, I'd say, the the fastest way to kind of bring you up to speed. Um, I grew up quite academic, focused on finance and chemistry. I did an MBA, um, and you know all my goals were set on becoming a management consultant. Uh, and when I got there and I landed that position, it was as if I had an awakening that you know this isn't really the life I want to live. And I had never really defined success for myself. So that kind of quarter life crisis occurred. Um, that, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for interrupting you so early, because, but I'm really interested in what you said there, that you just kind of had a feeling it, it wasn't for you. Um, but it's something that a lot of people will will feel at, at, you know, sometimes many points in their career. What was it that made you realize it wasn't for you? Was it a gut feeling? Was it just you couldn't see the future in it? Yep, it, it was a few things. Um, so consulting was kind of the last stop on the career tra- train, but all of the points ahead, uh, prior to it, finance, logistics roles, sales and strategy, and then consulting, I realized that I felt disconnected from the, the role. I wasn't necessarily passionate about the problems I was solving. Uh, and and I realized, you know, with the consulting being the final, the final, you know, 
the final job I was going to wake up and do and not be passionate about, uh, it, it came down to a simple question I had never asked myself. And that was, who do you want to be? I spent my entire career from the perspective of what do you want to do? And I never asked, well, who do you want to be and what impact you want to make? And what does success look like for you? I, I chase societal versions of success. And so I think just reframing of those questions, it became something that I couldn't ignore, that this isn't the person I want to be. And, and you know, if, if we only get one life, why waste it uh, not being the per- person that you think you could be? Uh, so all of those thoughts kind of happened simultaneously, and uh, it, was, it became too, too great for me to ignore. Very, very interesting. So, uh, so once you made that decision that management consulting wasn't for you, was it was it a big um, aha Jerry Maguire type moment, um, or was it a gradual thing and you sort of suddenly found yourself on the next uh, part of the, the the adventure? Let's say uh, it would be a bit of both. Um, it was at least a year of kind of going back and forth, anxiety, thinking, should I quit this? This is, you know, I spent my entire life building myself up to this identity uh, and then just going to walk away from it with no blueprint. Uh, so it took about a year for me to finally cut the cord. And my consulting firm was so incredibly supportive. I have to say, I probably wouldn't have taken such a leap of faith had they not said, you know, if things don't work out, you can come back. Um, so that was a big, a big part of it. Um, but it did get to a point where, was, you know, I had to fully submit back in my keys, hand back the signing bonus, take out a loan, um, and finally pull the plug. So it was a, a long process, but then suddenly a short one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And were you uh, launching yourself out into the unknown or were you launching yourself out into something um, very specific in terms of an idea for the next step? Completely unknown. Um, Really and truly, I didn't have a plan. I had an intuition um, and a feeling that I, I would be able to take everything I had learned in my old life and use it to create a version of life that I actually wanted to see and live. But I didn't know what that would look like or what I would be doing to make that happen. Um, but that's where the betting on myself really came into play. I'm, I'm giving up so much. Uh, now I really have to go in and act on that. So um, I, I've obviously had a great look around your really, really good website way. And um, as part of your sort of bio, I came across the lines, recognizing the pace at which advanced technologies would soon outpace the workforce, Sinead Bovell made it her mission to bridge the information gap between young entrepreneurs and the digital future. So was that was that eureka moment? Was that the the, the, the first in part of the way being set up? Was that the, the, the light bulb moment? Yeah, I, well, I would say when I stepped into the world of fashion, um, And I would still arrive on modeling sets talking about the things that I would wake up and talk about in my old world, artificial intelligence, the future of work, blockchain, digital transformation. And I realized that people were so intrigued and so interested in these conversations, makeup artists, photographers, other models, but they were just never invited to them. And when you look at the future of work and the rate at which advanced technologies are going to rapidly disrupt the workforce and how we live, Everybody needs to be invited to that conversation. There isn't a job that isn't going to be augmented or if not fully automated by technology. So we need to do a better job at communicating to broader audiences so we all walk into the future prepared, not just people who are have an MBA, a finance degree, and are a consultant. We need everybody to be in that room. Uh, and so that was kind of the light bulb moment, showing up at these modeling sets. Um, by the end of the day, I'd have you know a little circle of makeup artists and photographers around me listening to these ad hoc talks about the future. 
And so I thought, okay, I'll start writing this in a blog form called Weekly Advice for Young Young Entrepreneurs and see if anybody cares. And the blogs went viral. I turned it into an event series called Way Talks, and those went viral. Um, And that's when I knew that this is it. This is the tech education company that the world doesn't have because no one's really thought about these people. We've only been speaking to one another, those who already speak tech. That is really interesting, and, and it, it, it maybe a good way to to frame exactly what you're just talking about there um, is by telling me about is it Shudu Graham, this very striking South African model. <laughs> Shudu Graham is a striking South African model. Um, I would say she's an activist um, and quite motivated to make a difference in the fashion world and beyond, uh, and. I, the only real difference, uh, so to speak, between her and I is that she's a digital avatar, so to speak. She doesn't actually exist. Uh, and I do, or at least according to physics, I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> and having seen a photo of Shudu, it is, um, it is un- it's incredible. Like you would not think for one second that Shudu is not a, a real person. So, you know, I think when we think about jobs being replaced by digital technology, um, we think some of the obvious stuff that someone on a factory line um, loses their job because the machine can put that in the box or the machine can, um, you know, put this bit together. We don't think about jobs like models, for example, and probably many other jobs that are also under threat, let's say. Absolutely. Uh, models, actors, musicians, um, things that we would assume uh, technology can't replace. We think art is something that is uniquely human, but the truth of the matter is there's a pattern to a lot of uh, the artistic world. There's a pattern to acting. Um, And if there's a pattern, AI can pick up on that. Uh, And if it's something that can be coded, um, AI has a quite a good shot at, at coding it correctly. And as you said, the shudu in a way that's quite believable. Um, so I think we, the best thing for us is to, is to educate ourselves through that misconception that AI, that creative jobs are immune from augmentation because that is truly far from the truth. Yeah, because as they say, all all um, good songs are just made up of the three the, the same three chords. They're just laid out differently. So surely a bot could come up mm-hmm. with some interesting, unique structures for the same three chords. Absolutely, absolutely. Music is one that we're seeing AI tap into quite um, quite rapidly. Actually, I know Google has a few great tools uh, where you can take past uh, music from artists that are deceased um, and use that to kind of train a different model. You can create mu- music from scratch without knowing a thing about it. Um, but the AI is just kind of making up the music as it goes. We're going to see synthetic media, which we have seen in the in the in the world of deep fakes. Um, unfortunately, that's kind of the darker side of it. But those same tools will be used to create, um, maybe when you check into a virtual doctor's office, you'll be greeted uh, by a digital human, um, which would use the same technology as deep fakes. Or the next time you watch a movie, uh, it might be Brad Pitt alongside uh, an AI uh, avatar. I mean, just really won't even know the difference. Yeah. You, uh, on your website as well, you pull out a really interesting statistic from McKinsey, which is by the, by the year 2030, more than 800 million jobs will be replaced by technology. Um, I suppose the significant question is, uh, as those jobs are being lost, are, they, are, they being, are jobs being created at the same rate as the jobs are being lost, or is it a, a, a worse ratio, for example? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Over the next decade... 
Um, the, the ratio would be quite similar. In fact, about 80% of the jobs of 2030 haven't been invented yet. Uh, so if you are under the age of about 12, the jobs that you're going to do probably don't exist yet. Uh, so that's an exciting thing. And, and with technology, we've always seen a bloom of new jobs, and especially now with tech um, disrupting biology, space, physics, every single industry. Uh, the amount of jobs that are going to emerge from that is going to be truly amazing. We, things that we've never heard of or can't even conceptualize now. After maybe 2035, that's when it becomes a little bit uncertain as to this, the nature of work, of course, the nature of work as, work as we know it today is already changing. Remote work, gig work, um, you can be a gig-based lawyer. All of these things are actually quite um, revolutionary if you look back even 10 years from now. But when artificial intelligence gets to a level um, where it is a little bit more of a master of quite a few things, uh, say around the 2035 time, that's when it gets a little bit more challenging to forecast, okay, what does that um, automation versus uh, new creation of jobs ratio look like? Is it still around one for one? Um, or are we truly redefining work um, altogether? So who um, and you're exploring, you know, these issues and so and so much more through um, uh, through your your channel. Let's call it way. Um, who is your audience? It, do you have a, a pretty sort of specific audience who you are reaching and who you're engaging with? Yep. So the the core portion of our audience, I would say, um, is Gen Z and millennials um, who are it can range from people that are. are all Gen Z and millennials are quite digitally, digital natives, um, but from those that are a little bit more experts in tech, uh, but want to get more of the ethical side of technology. So now I'm maybe I'm an engineer, but I don't have the ethical frameworks to go with it, uh, as well as uh, young people that don't have the tech education that they should. Um, and it's not because they weren't eager to acquire it. It's because it wasn't available to them, um, but they are quite uh, willing to to be a part of this future with advanced technologies. They're excited about it. Um, they're good at the tools when they're uh, provided with such tools, um, but they just they find tech education just wasn't there um, growing up for them, whether it's high school, university, they couldn't get access uh, to, you know, studying the ways in which AI will disrupt medicine and what that means for their career, those types of conversations. Well, are there certain people, let's like, uh, you know, parts of society, certain um, uh, people from different ethnic groups, different age groups, um, that kind of thing, that are better set up for the future, naturally, this future that you talk about. And so conversely, are there those who uh, um, are most vulnerable to the changes that we're going to see? Yes, in terms of um, the, I guess, advantage and privileges that some are afforded and not others, um, it would depend on the neighborhood you're born into, your zip code, um, which would dictate if you have access to broadband, um, likely the lending rates um, your parents would have been given to try to build a life. Um, and depending on that rate, you could also correlate if you were the type of teen that had access to a laptop or an iPad uh, to be successful at something like remote school, for example, or submit college applications, or did you have to go into the library? Um, so yeah, there were certain groups um, and you, you can correlate a lot of based on you know, the genetic lottery or, or the lottery of where you are born into, which family you're born into. Uh, so that's one massive disadvantage um, the digital divide, so to speak. 
Um, and then in terms of technology itself, um, how you look. So me, for example, most technologies weren't necessarily coded uh, with a female, somebody identifying as a female, person of color. Um, I would have a le- much less less success rate or a lower success rate going into an airport with facial recognition technology um, than somebody that is, say, white and male. Uh, So there's many different categories of who's more set up for technology or who technology is likely to work more effectively for um, and who it's most likely not going to work effectively for at this point in time. And then who has the tools to further go into those those tech rooms to make those changes. Um, And unfortunately, until we bridge the digital divide and we bridge the access to proper technology, uh, tech education, it makes it harder to go and challenge the reason why we don't have diversity in these tech rooms um, if we're not working simultaneously to close both of those gaps and those problems. It's really interesting. And, you know, you mentioned the AI there. And of course, AI is only as intelligent and impartial as the person p- putting the data into it. If the people who, who currently hold certain biases are the ones programming the AI, are we just continuing the way things are as opposed to using technology as a way to maybe try and um, unbias some certain certain biases? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If we don't address the lack of diversity in technology, we're going to run an extremely high risk of uh, reinforcing historical power imbalances and societal biases. So who's in the room literally when we're coding the future is incredibly important. Um, Kathy McNeil uh, is a machine learning expert. She wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction, and she uses a quote uh, that I reference quite often that algorithms are opinions embedded in code. Um, And that is really, really true. And so if you have only one set of opinions, one perspective, one set of experiences in the room, you can guarantee that that technology is not going to work effectively for anyone else besides the demographics of those who coded it. Uh, So it's really, really critical uh, that we address this diversity, this massive diversity crisis in technology. And is this what you're trying to do through uh, Way? Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Um, I think so many people don't even necessarily realize the ways in which algorithms are already present and making decisions for them and, and in their lives. So alerting people to this is where algorithms are. Um, this is where they are. This is where they're going. This is where you'll likely see them. Here are frameworks you can use to evaluate whether you think that this works effectively for you, your community, your family or not. Um, here's how you evaluate that. Here's how you approach that. So giving people frameworks so they can then be equipped um, to make these decisions and, and to see these types of problems on their own. Um, and that's something that we do quite rigorously at way. Um, and I, I wish it was something that was um, more mainstream. It wasn't something that you had to kind of go out of your way to find. It was a part of regular tech education um, because we're at a stage already where who gets a loan, who gets parole, a lot of that is already decided by algorithms. Um, so really? technology is, yeah, yeah. And there's been quite quite a few problems as a result of that. Um, we've seen a lot of racial biases and issues. For example, an algorithm is used in Florida to decide who gets, um, who is likely to reoffend. And the algorithm was trained on human data of the past on Florida's uh, criminal justice system, which contained a lot of racial biases. And so the algorithm forecasted um, black people to be two times as likely um, to recommit offenses, uh, which really impacted their, their sentencing. 
um, than white people. Um, and so when people, when, when tech experts went in and looked at the algorithm, they found that it had to be pulled. And, you know, Amazon's another one that used AI to, for a hiring tool. Um, and it would only recommend men for the tech roles. Um, and so they had to scrap that. So there's a lot of places where algorithms are already making decisions for people. So if you can empower people um, with the knowledge to know, you know, first of all, was an algorithm making this decision? What information from me did it use to make that decision? And do I have an opportunity uh, to refute the, pro the problem or the process if I don't think that decision was made fairly? Um, and so that's something that I hope um, everybody learns, but something that we're very passionate about at Way. Well, what are some of the wins you've seen then? Is a win for you, um, somebody somebody who had no idea about this stuff coming up to you one day and going, listen, thanks a million for sort of opening my, my eyes to this. I realized this, I asked these questions and, and, you know, I got myself into a better position or at least I'm aware of what to avoid or whatever. Is, is that what success looks like? That would definitely be a part of it. Um, success for us is when we get emails um, from women and people of color that have now change their entire university trajectory to include technology um, or an email from an engineer, somebody that's in a university taking engineering who also goes and enrolls in philosophy. Um, that's something that's a, that's a massive win for us. Um, people that have then gone on to educate their families about the ways in which algorithms are used and how that could shape their life. Um, that's something that's a win for us. And, and our demographics of um, being a significant majority of our audience are, are women and people of color. And that's something that you usually don't see in tech rooms. Um, so that in and of itself um, is, is a great win for us and something that we're very proud of. Really interesting. And one of the things I saw on your website is that um, you describe yourself as being driven by a mission to build a progressive, informed and thriving society, one in which technology is built on the right side of history. So what does technology being on the wrong side of history look like to you? Is it simply just continuing the, the societal biases that we see right now and that you've, you've described? Or is it something a, a lot more dystopian than that? Uh, yeah, I don't think we are in a great situation now in terms of the, the data that's collected on us, uh, the lack of transparency of what happens to our data. Um, we're, we're quite uninformed as to where algorithms are used and how that impacts us. There's only a few tech companies responsible for literally building our future, and I think that that's a problem. Um, but if we don't address this, if we just continue on this current path, I think the future could be a lot more dystopian uh, if we don't make some massive changes around um, data, for example, being a huge one. Um, even having regulation um, and rules around AI, we don't really, I think the EU, um, put out some rules recently. The UK has put out some rules recently. It omitted massive industries like military. Um, but this is kind of the first that we've seen. And that's incredibly problematic when you have a technology uh, that in many ways is going to be more intelligent than humans in, in many different areas. That can't just be left up to the person in front of the computer to decide uh, what we do with it or how it should be coded. We need some guidelines. And of course, you never want to hamper innovation. Um, but you also just you'd also don't want to risk human lives. Um, you don't want to risk human privacy, all of these things. And I don't think we're doing a great job at, at addressing that right now. It's and there's so much to take in, really. So I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, um, would it be fair to, I just want to put sort of put a, a scenario to, together. Um, would it be fair to say that, you know, some 
um, hiring tech or HR tech might have a little bit of bias built in so, so that, you know, the if a, if a company like Google, for example, gets a thousand job applications, is there a little bit of AI at work that might have a little bit of bias at work that might not allow certain people get to round two, but they should have, or it's not right that they didn't for, for, for particular reasons? Oh, absolutely. Actually, a significant majority of companies use AI hiring tools um, already. And I think the promise of AI tools are fabulous. It makes so much sense. The idea of sifting through resumes, um, it's very, very tedious. And it's probably not somebody who has an HR degree and an expert. It's not necessarily in their best interest. They want to be driving the strategy of where we should hire and what the future of human capital looks like. Um, So having an assistant, so to speak, an AI tool is very, very important. I understand that use case. However, the AI is going to learn based on the historical data of what a successful hire looks like at that company. And so when you look literally at the demographics of the company, if you only see one type of person, the algorithm is going to take that and amplify it and exacerbate it um, when it goes to select who would be best for that role, because you've told it who will be best for that role. This type of person has tended to work and, and get a lot of promotions and go up the ranks really quickly. And this is what success you have told me looks like based on your historical data. So there is a, ma- a major threat of biases appearing in, in human resources. Um, and that's why I believe every company does need to realize that they are a tech company, whether they're in the, the business of tech or not. Because if you're using tools, to tech to make decisions, like who gets a job, you are a tech company and you need to know the dangers of those tools so you can mitigate such risks. So is that the HR manager having to learn about this or should every company, because I'm sure HR is only one department where we have this kind of thing at play, um, should every company have, uh, you know, somebody appointed a, a chief AI officer or something like that who understands um, all of the possible implications of uh, many of the programs that will be at work within this uh, company? Yeah, I think um, if you're going to use these advanced tools, Um, it it doesn't mean that you have to be an expert to use them. We use advanced tools like Netflix every day. Um, So that doesn't mean that the AI or the HR specialist has to go and get a PhD in in artificial intelligence, but they do need some support, like a data specialist, a data hygiene expert, um, to be able to assist them in doing this right. Um, I do believe it's the job of human resources. If there isn't diversity in your company and that falls under your department, um, you are responsible for that. So that is something that I think HR needs to be very, very aware of. um, And the basics that an algorithm would uh, exacerbate that problem How do you then fix it? How do you build um, data that's a bit more progressive um, or more in line with where your company wants to go? That could take um, a data analyst, a data specialist, an AI expert. Um, And that, of course, is on the company to to staff that role accordingly. Um, Bring that person in so you can do it right. Um, But again, yeah, that's why you have to start thinking like a tech company, uh, because it's going to accompany almost every decision that gets made in your organization. And if you're not hiring like you're a tech company, you're either going to fall behind um, in terms of the market you're in, or you're about to get called out for something uh, quite bad, like discrimination and hiring that could have been prevented. Well, is there is there a piece of AI-powered technology 
that is, has been designed to monitor other pieces of AI powered um, technology for inherent bias and for data that could be done better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that does exist as well. Algorithms that look for biases in data, um, which could also be uh, a source of help in risk mitigation. Um, but still, you still need a human in that process. Um, the famous line in AI, a human in the loop, um, to still make sure that everything is working um, effectively, fairly, um, transparently, uh, so you don't want to leave it all up to AI, so to speak. But there are technical tools to, to make spotting bias in data sets and things like that a little easier. Um, but they have to be invested in. It can't be a corner that gets cut because it's not going to end well for anyone if, if, if it does get cut that way. Yeah. Well, look, before we wrap up, um, Sinead, I'd love to um, talk to you about the concept of a digital twin. On your Instagram uh, uh, <laughs> recently, you're saying that in the future, we will all have a digital twin eventually most of us will will actually have one. So what is that and what does it mean for us? Mm-hmm. A digital twin, it's actually um, a, a concept that's been used in engineering for decades now, uh, just a virtual um, simulation of a real life um, product or process. Um, so for example, I use the example of your dishwasher, your, the, the manufacturer probably had a digital twin of that dishwasher. And so they could simulate how it's working. And if something was to break down, the simulation would flag it. And then you could send those updates out to the real world, world versions. Um, so that's how a digital twin works in, um, in theory and in engineering. Uh, we're stepping into a new age of human digital twins or personal digital twins, um, where we will have um, some form of an avatar, so to speak, um, that could show up in Zoom meetings on our behalf um, or in the world of healthcare, for example. Um, if you have your genome sequenced um, and your body scanned and all of your unique health data points uploaded to this digital twin, you could test a process on that twin before undergoing a procedure yourself. So you could map out and simulate, if I was to get this you know, quadruple bypass, how would my body actually hold up. And so it's no longer just up to a, a, a guesstimate um, by medical providers. You could actually run the simulation on your digital twin. Um, so there's many different uh, use cases for it. Uh, you could also have your digital twin respond to emails for you. Um, and and yeah, so there's many different ways uh, and areas and use cases for digital twins of the future. Um, but I think it's going to be, you know, it seems quite crazy now, but if you were to rewind the clock 30 years um, and tell people we're eventually going to have these profiles online that represent us, people can comment on them, people can click on them and set up a date with them, but that person isn't actually there in that computer. It's kind of like a simulation already. You already have pictures of yourself um, existing in these digital worlds uh, that you aren't necessarily in, so to speak. Uh, so I think eventually we'll look back on digital twins and, and, and maybe wonder how we lived without them, especially in the, in the world of healthcare. I mean, you don't necessarily want um, a, a digital twin, a president being, you know, just the digital twin. Um, but I think yeah. there will be um, more lower, lower risk use cases um, and things like healthcare, uh, where it will prove to be quite, quite helpful for humans. 
That's really, really interesting. And like with so many, so many things like transformative technology, it doesn't, we don't just wake up one day and this tech is there and now we all have to adapt. It happens very gradually, doesn't it? A, a bit by bit, like with self-driving cars, you know, most of the cars we're in now have certain elements of automation already built in. It's just that increases over time. So it's almost a gradual thing. Absolutely. We'll probably on the trajectory for digital twins, we'll start getting more familiar with um, AI embedded into your email. You already have AI that predicts what you're going to say. If you use Gmail, I'm sure you've seen that. Um, And eventually that AI will get a little bit more personal. Um, So it won't just predict what you're going to say. It will be unique to you and based on what you're up to in the job that you're in. And it won't just be a few words. Maybe it will say, I will give you a paragraph that you could reply with um, and save you that sort of time. Um, And then eventually, instead of it just being this um, AI that's writing the paragraph for you, um, maybe your avatar then is formed and can can say that paragraph in a digital meeting on your behalf. So it will be a a longer, more gradual um, kind of trajectory towards this future with with advanced technologies in general, but especially with digital twins. Um, It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't happen within 48 hours. I mean, well, the pandemic did make a lot of things happen a lot faster than we would have seen, but but for the most part, technology does take time. Uh, It it, it doesn't just happen overnight. Well, finally, Sinead, uh, this has been so interesting. You've been, b- because of the the area you're speaking, there's obviously huge demand for more knowledge on this. And, and that's proven because you're, I guess, the success of way, the amount of people you reach every day. But it's also meant you've been invited to speak at the United Nations and the US Chamber of Commerce about technology in the future. So when you are invited, to, when you know, these are incredible opportunities. And obviously, we can only leave audiences with, with so many messages, ultimately. So what is your sort of overarching message or the thing that you want to leave people with when it comes to what you've made your your life's mission? I've never been asked that before. Um, I would say, you know, I, I like to say that the best thing we can do about the future is prepare for it. It doesn't have to be this mystery that we blindly walk into. Uh, we know what we're getting ourselves into because we are actively coding it and making it happen. So if we just take the time to do it intentionally, to mitigate risk as much as possible, to ensure that this future that we're building works effectively for everyone, we have a chance at a pretty incredible future for so many more people um, than if we don't have technology. But it does take preparation. It does take effort. It does take intention. Uh, so yeah, my my key message would be, you know, the best thing we can do about this future is is, is just prepare for it. Very well said. Um, where can people find you? Where can they read more about you? Watch your uh, videos and and hear your stuff. Uh, you can find us at waytalks.com, and that's W A Y E way with an E talks.com uh, on YouTube. Way TV. We post um, a lot of snippets from our talks there. Uh, we're very active on social media with our handles just being WayTalks, both on Instagram, on LinkedIn, uh, and Twitter. Um, and then I'm also active on, on platforms like LinkedIn or Instagram. So if you have ever any questions about the future, about if an algorithm is making some decision for you that you're not too certain about, uh, you are more than welcome to reach out to me on, on any platforms. Sinead Bovell, founder of Way. It's been fascinating speaking with you. Thank you very much for joining us on TELUS International Studios. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
And thanks again to Sinead Bovell for joining us here on TELUS International Studios. Thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit follow or subscribe to help more people just like you discover TELUS International Studios. If you'd like to find out more about the company that brings you this podcast, just visit TELUSinternational.com. We will be back very soon with another episode of TELUS International Studios. I hope you can join us then. And until then, take care.